Tanya, I just want to let you know, since we're doing a show about the future of uh, transportation, I'm going to be really disappointed if we don't talk about flying hover cars at all, okay? I'm sure we can weave that in. Hey there, Pulse Check listeners. This is Jeremy Siegel, continuing our special series on the coronavirus outbreak. Today, we're doing something a little different. and taking a break from the health aspect of the pandemic to look at transit. We will never have everyone going back to nine to five commuting. Traffic patterns continue to change. More and more people start driving again. We will continue to need high capacity transit services, whether that's rail or bus rapid transit. And those services need to be the structuring devices for the way we design our region. Those are the voices of transportation experts and officials from across the country who got together with Politico transportation reporter Tanya Snyder recently to discuss how the pandemic has changed the shape of public transit in the U.S. and created a unique opportunity to reshape everyday travel going forward. So today, I'm talking with Tanya about what she learned. So Tanya, how would you say the pandemic changed transit and the way we think about it in America? Well, I think that part of what the pandemic did was it showed us the importance of essential workers, and it showed us the importance of transit that essential workers depend on. When everyone else, when white-collar workers, knowledge workers started working from home, and a lot of people became unemployed as well, essential workers were still depending on transit. And transit systems at first found themselves with 5% of the ridership that they'd had a week before, a month before, and started to really wind down service to save money and then realized that transit was really the thing holding society together. The essential employees that had been the ones who've been trying to keep some kind of normal going, many of them have been extremely dependent upon the public transportation services. Because if essential workers couldn't get to work, couldn't put food on our tables, couldn't heal our sick, then society, which was already, I mean, if you think back to last March and last April, we were so vulnerable. Things were so fragile. These are jobs that can't be done from home. And with an ongoing unemployment crisis crippling our country, many workers have no option other than to show up despite the health risk. And to think that, in a sense, transit was, was one of the things that was really holding us together. I think gives us a, a new appreciation for what transit does in helping people move around and helping people who don't necessarily have their own cars, don't have their own access to, to a private vehicle, um, but depend actually on the most efficient mode of transportation we have, which is mass transit. So you have this situation where the pandemic is shining a new spotlight on the people who depend on transit. But at the same time, now you have society just starting to go back to normal. Like I saw last week, I think the New York subway had its biggest day of ridership since the pandemic began, right? That's right. Yeah. So it feels like, you know, we're in this sort of weird moment where things could go back to exactly how they were before, or we could use the pandemic as an opportunity to figure out new ways to go forward and learn from it. And you got together a group of transportation policy experts and officials to talk about that. And you all came up with a series of ideas for how to reshape transit. And 
I thought we could just walk through some of them. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. Okay, the first one you all came up with is to consider equity in transit more and to put an end to transit redlining. What exactly is that? Well, we don't talk about redlining in transit the way that we talk about it in terms of housing, but but we can certainly talk about equity issues and the ways that we serve people and and the fact that we've underinvested in transit for so long partly because it has this kind of reputation as being for poor people in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And so we underinvest in it and then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that people with other options will take any other mode of transportation because it's faster, it's more reliable, it's more pleasant. And we leave transit for the people who can't afford anything else. So when we have a system like that, we are prioritizing and incentivizing the least efficient mode, right? The one that leaves us with congested cities, traffic jams, streets that we're walking and biking are dangerous, um, with 40,000 people dying on our roadways every year, and with a climate catastrophe where transportation is the single largest emitter of climate emissions. As Beth Osborne said, who is the director of Transportation for America and was a top official in the Obama administration, mm-hmm. the, the idea that we need to you know, decide whether we're going to serve the core constituency of people who ride transit because they have no other choice or serve people who we want to lure out of their cars because getting them out of their cars is better for the environment, for our cities. We shouldn't have to make a choice. We should be providing good, reliable, frequent service for everyone. What we have to say is how are we going to move people around our region, whether they are essential workers or white collar uh, workers, it doesn't matter. All people need to be able to move around efficiently. And that's what you would do if you decided to fully invest in your transit system. So the idea is like transit is the last resort for a lot of people and the only choice sometimes for lower income essential workers, but to not only make it more equitable, but to make things more efficient and and cleaner for the environment, you make transit appealing and convenient so that it's the first choice across the board. Right, right. And Mohammed Mizgani, the secretary general of the International Association of Public Transport in Europe, made a really good point that I think that a lot of people in the United States are afraid to make, which is that you're really not going to get greater transit ridership and adoption among people with other choices if we continue to incentivize driving alone, if we continue to make parking free and give up so much of our public space, so much of our public roadways to um, people driving alone and then let them clog up the roads so that buses run slow and it takes people a long time to get where they're going on transit. Because we can't just say, okay, uh, let people use their cars and, and, and go wherever they want with their cars. I mean, the city will collapse if we do that. We have to put the priority on the most efficient modes, which are, of course, walking, uh, public transit, cycling, and then cars. You know, if we keep subsidizing oil and gas, if we keep doing all of the things that we've been doing, um, all of the policies that we've been putting forward that really incentivize driving alone and say, what we're ending up with are counter to every goal that we set for ourselves as a country. And so let's incentivize something else. But but it's going to be hard to incentivize transit without disincentivizing driving. And that makes a lot of people mad. 
How do you disincentivize driving? Well, a lot of those things that I mentioned, I mean, first of all, we've been afraid to raise the gas tax for 28 years. I mean, that's an easy one. We need to pay for transportation somehow. You know, that, that's been the way that we've been paying for it. So actually raising the gas tax, not being afraid to have a user fee for driving. Um, and, you know, but, but we're getting into, um, where people have more fuel efficient vehicles and electric vehicles. And that's great for the climate goals, but for the rest of our goals in terms of congestion, in terms of having great cities, in terms of maintaining public space, in terms of social equity, driving alone is still driving alone, even if you're doing it in an EV. And so I think that making sure that, that people are paying the cost of their use of public space. And that could also mean lowering speed limits in a lot of places to to make sure that cities are safer. And that might mean that transit becomes more competitive with driving in terms of time spent. Uh-huh. And and parking. I mean, we we give up vast swaths of our city for for parking, you know, including on roads or surface parking lots or garages. And we let people park in them for free. And that's incredibly valuable space. So all of those things have a cost. And that's just a cost that we've decided not to make drivers bear. And in other places where they're really dedicated to improving transit, drivers bear more of those costs. Hmm. The next idea that the experts you spoke to came up with, and I feel like this kind of goes hand in hand with making transit more equitable, is to refocus on bus service. Why buses specifically? Well, there's been an idea for a long time, again, going back to this idea of, are we going to serve the people who use transit all the time? Or are we going to try to lure people out of their cars? There's been this idea that rail is a more sort of upper class mode, that you know wealthy professionals are not comfortable on the bus, they're comfortable on rail. Again, if we make the bus great, everyone's going to want to use it. But there's been this idea that that the rail can be a pleasant riding experience and the bus isn't or can't be. Mm-hmm. One of the things about rail, and, and Jarrett Walker is a transit consultant. He works all around the country, all around the world, um, helping transit agencies make their systems better. And And one thing that he said that was really interesting was that um, for a long time, rail was held up as... You can't build economic development around buses because buses are too flexible. A bus route could be there one day and then gone the next. A rail line gives you permanence. It gives you the sense of permanence and it allows businesses to build around it and have that certainty that the transit is going to be there to serve their business. But the flexibility of buses is so much of what makes them useful. It makes sense to have a mode of transportation that is flexible. And it made so much sense during the pandemic when, you know, there were so many businesses in so many areas that were just completely locked down and completely closed. It wasn't worth serving them. And yet you still needed to get essential workers to work. And so you could, you could just on a dime, transit agencies could reconfigure their bus routes so that they were serving the people who were still riding at that point. The last in your list of ideas that I wanted to talk about um, on how to change transportation coming out of the pandemic is to detangle jurisdictions. Uh, I can relate to this one because as an audio journalist, I'm constantly detangling cords for all my equipment. But um, in all seriousness, 
explain this one to me. Like, what is the problem with transportation jurisdictions that we're seeing and how do we fix it? I really learned a lot talking to the practitioners on this one and understanding that to put in a bus stop, to put in a stop sign, takes such a maze of permits and permissions from so many different agencies, so many of which are out of the control of the city officials that really have their eyes on the streets and and know what needs to be done. But they need to get permission from so many other people and get money from so many other people. City officials control so little of the money. Bev Scott, who is also a transit consultant now, but has been the CEO of four different transit agencies, spoke to this really clearly. I could take any one of them, 10,000 bus stops. Every one of them requires a permit, a permit that I don't give. If you took the anatomy of a street and just started putting the different agencies and stuff that have to give approvals for what in order for things to happen that we're talking about, I bet you, you would be amazed, okay? To put in a a stop sign, you know, you you need to go through so many different permissions and authorities um, just to get that done. And and Keith Benjamin uh, from Charleston also mentioned how hard it is because he doesn't control the roads and that that um, that varies city by city who controls the roads, whether it's the city, the county, the state. Um, and then there's also federal aid highways where the federal government has some say into what happens there. And so South Carolina, where Keith Benjamin is, is fourth in the country in the number of roads that are controlled by the state DOT. And so he, in Charleston, has very little control over what happens to those streets. And and that's a, a disparity that goes back a long time that, that the way that city officials look at transportation is just really different from the way state officials look at transportation. State officials tend to be looking at longer distances and how to, how to connect parts of the states and they're often looking at highways. And city officials are looking at the way that people get around to, to go through their day and trying to make sure that they're doing that in the most efficient way possible. So how do you fix that? Well, part of it um, is something that the federal government can do, which is making sure that not all formula funds go through state DOTs as they as they normally do, um, and making sure that cities have more access to direct funding. There are a few competitive grant programs at the Department of Transportation where cities are eligible as applicants, and they can apply directly without going through their states. And those are enormously popular. I think that a lot of that has to happen probably at the local, state, and county level, though, to give city transportation officials more say over what happens in their streets. And that includes um, not going through, jumping through so many hoops to get permissions and also making sure that they have direct access to the money. And some of that they mentioned happened during the pandemic just because there was a crisis, because there was this emergency, that some of the rules just kind of fell by the wayside. And that nimbleness was something that a lot of the panelists mentioned that they want to preserve going forward. Hmm. It's interesting thinking about the different jurisdictions and where funding goes, because right now, Congress and the White House are negotiating Um, an infrastructure bill. And obviously a big part of that could be transportation projects. And I'm just curious, like, you know, with everything we've been talking about, there's sort of big lofty ideas for how to transform transit 
in small areas or like within cities. Would federal legislation like what's being considered and negotiated right now, would it have a practical impact in some of the stuff that we've just been talking about? Overall, what the Biden administration wants to do uh, with the American Jobs Plan and what Democratic counterparts in the House and Senate also want to do is to make a, a major, major investment in transit. And the Biden administration especially is really focused on making sure that those transit dollars go to low-income communities. So I think that these plans actually do address a lot of the goals that the experts that I talked to were prioritizing. All right, that's our show for this week. I'm Jeremy Siegel, and big thanks to Tanya Snyder for joining me. She reported this story as part of the Politico series Recovery Lab, which explores the big ideas for how the country can emerge from the pandemic. You can find more at politico.com and in this episode's show notes. Pulse Check's senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.